The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. He sure acts like a Russian agent. This is Thursday, January 17th, 2019. Thank you for supporting this independent news by patronizing its sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. These days we find ourselves saying words we never thought we'd say. That the President of the United States appears to be an agent saboteur for our nation's greatest enemy. The Washington Post this week listed 18 pieces of evidence supporting the conclusion that Trump is working for Russia. The Post looked for evidence he's not. It didn't find any. And now, as the President prepares to move American troops out of Putin's way in Syria in accordance with Russia's wishes, American lives have been lost. None of the troops to be withdrawn have left yet, only their equipment is being sent home at the moment in a pullout that's chaotic because the military didn't see Trump's order coming. Four Americans were among those killed this week in a part of Syria where the president had claimed ISIS had been defeated. The deaths included two U.S. soldiers. Just hours after learning of the American soldiers' deaths, Vice President Mike Pence issued a statement repeating the claim that ISIS had been crushed in Syria. That claim, that false pretext for granting Russia's wish that the U.S. troops get out of its way, that claim is exposed as a lie in the blood of American soldiers who were killed in a bomb attack in a city that was once under U.S. control. The nation had grown accustomed to a president who habitually lies. But this lie was different. This lie appears to have led to the shedding of American blood. Russian President Vladimir Putin rose to power because of his past as an official of the Soviet Union spy agency, the dreaded and feared KGB. The candidate favored by Putin in the 2016 U.S. election lost the popular vote, but won the Electoral College and became President of the United States. We know that during the campaign, there were more than 100 contacts between members of the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence operatives while Russia was in the midst of a cyber attack on the debate that shaped the election. There's hard evidence that Trump's campaign manager shared real-time election data with Russian operatives during the campaign. There is evidence that the June 2016 meeting in Trump Tower between Trump's top campaign officials and Russians happened because the campaign was eager to get its hands on information to damage the nemesis of both Trump and Putin, Hillary Clinton. Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani said late last night that Trump did not collude with Russia, but Giuliani said he could not speak to what others in the campaign might have done. And then there is evidence that foreign money, including Russian money, was illegally funneled into the Trump campaign. The president and his people have repeatedly and publicly lied about those contacts, lied to the public, FBI agents, and to Congress. And we know that the candidate favored by a hostile foreign government has, as president, acted consistently in ways that benefit Russia, trying to lift sanctions, punishments imposed on Russia for its misdeeds. Pulling our troops out of Syria, another item on Putin's to-do list that's having deadly consequences for Americans. Making repeated pro-Putin and pro-Russian statements. Pushing the Republican Party platform into a more pro-Russian direction. Working business deals with Russia during the campaign while lying to voters about it. Asking Russia to hack Clinton's emails. Attacking the institutions dedicated to fighting Russian mischief, our intelligence agencies, and the Justice Department, which includes the FBI trying to establish back channels of communication with the Kremlin, refusing to blame Russia for election interference, inviting Russian government officials into the Oval Office where he shared with them classified information and bragged that firing James Comey had taken the heat off him, 
further dividing the American people and Trump's own secret meetings with Vladimir Putin, weakening NATO and the State Department, shutting down government, and naming acting cabinet officials. Weakening or destroying NATO is at the top of Putin's wish list, and now Trump's own people are so alarmed about his repeatedly stated desire to destroy NATO by pulling the U.S. out of it, they've alerted the New York Times to spread the word. NATO is the alliance that ended all wars in Europe and has kept the peace there for nearly three quarters of a century. To allow NATO to collapse now by pulling the U.S. out of it would clear the way for Russian aggression and expansion. It would allow Putin to fulfill his dream of rebuilding the Soviet Union. Withdrawing the U.S. from NATO would cause the collapse of NATO. Even just talking about withdrawing from NATO is music to Putin's ears, according to the former Supreme Commander of the NATO allies. But Trump's already pulled out of a number of other international agreements. Why not NATO, too? NATO officials are now even afraid to schedule a celebration of their 70th anniversary this year, afraid Trump will use it as a platform to further weaken that international alliance whose main purpose was to keep Russia in check. At the last summit, NATO leaders made it a point to discuss their strategy against Putin before the U.S. president could arrive. Not once has Trump committed to staying in NATO. And now we know from frightened Trump aides, he's talked repeatedly about getting out of it. The suspicion that this president is acting as an agent for Russia has grown from possibility to likelihood. What many of us have long feared increasingly appears to be true. And now we know we are not the only ones who think so. We are not alone. It turns out before handing its investigation over to special counsel Robert Mueller, the FBI was considering what was then just a frightening possibility. If only for a few days, the nation's top law enforcement agency was investigating whether the president works for Russia. It was the firing of FBI Director James Comey and the reasons given for it that prompted the FBI to launch a counterintelligence investigation into the president. It was then that FBI agents began to wonder in earnest whether the president was obstructing justice, not just on his own behalf, but on behalf of Russia. The FBI was looking at not just a domestic criminal obstruction case, but a case of counterintelligence obstruction. A counterintelligence probe can only be launched with strong evidence of a national security threat. Whether to investigate, whether it was proper, had been the subject of months of internal debate at the FBI. The Bureau had already been investigating four Trump campaign associates who'd had contact with Russia when the Steele dossier landed in their laps. But it was the interview with Lester Holt about the firing of FBI Director James Comey that ended that internal debate and made the president the target of an espionage probe. That and Trump's attempts to mention the Russia probe in the letter used to officially justify Comey's firing and his many tweets and statements on the subject, which are now also part of that obstruction investigation. Before handing it all over to Robert Mueller, the FBI wanted to know why it seemed the president is working for Russia and whether he had been compromised by Russia, whether they had something on him. They wanted to know if Trump was a witting or unwitting puppet for Moscow and whether the President of the United States posed a threat to our national security. Investigators wanted to know if Russia is using what it knows about Trump's political and or business and or personal dealings to get him to do Russia's bidding. The light about information sharing, the Trump Tower Moscow deal, the Steele dossier, and its unconfirmed tale of hookers and a fetish that most people find repulsive. 
And as this week began, we got transcripts of testimony for Congress that were kept secret during Republican control of the House. Then the FBI's top lawyer, James Baker, told the lawmakers the Bureau was considering whether Trump was, quote, acting at the behest of and somehow following directions from the Kremlin, somehow executing their will, said Baker. We are no longer talking just about how Trump got elected, but how he has governed. We're now talking about things he has done as president when it comes to all things Russia. In the first year of his presidency, Trump met with Vladimir Putin while the two of them were at a summit in Hamburg, Germany. Afterward, officials at the State Department who are normally briefed on what happens in these meetings and who have to deal with the consequences of those meetings were shocked to learn that the interpreter's notes had been confiscated by the president at the end of that meeting. The interpreter told not to discuss what he'd heard there. Then Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was also at that meeting but refused to talk about it afterward. The interpreter says Putin denied interfering with the election, and that Trump responded, I believe you. The rest of the five meetings between Trump and Putin have been just the two of them and their interpreters, even though, as a former Soviet spy, Putin also speaks English so he can bring spies instead of interpreters. We have no idea what the two leaders discussed in their two-hour private meeting at the Helsinki summit last summer, the one at which Trump would say he believed Putin's claim that Russia had not interfered with the election. The U.S. has no historical record of the discussions between these two world leaders. Russia has the records. We don't. In Helsinki, Trump and Putin kicked out the interpreters even. In Germany, it was just the two of them, with no Americans present, not even an interpreter. The American people learned of nearly all upcoming Trump-Putin meetings from Russian news media, not from the White House, as during a normal presidency. Readouts of what occurred in the Trump-Putin phone calls have come more often from the Kremlin than from official Washington. The State Department doesn't get a briefing on Trump's meetings with Putin, as it had with previous presidents. Even Trump's top administration people don't know what's actually being said in those secretive meetings to the leader of the government considered most hostile to the United States. The most U.S. officials have been able to learn about what went on in those meetings is what they have overheard in monitored conversations between Russian officials. It appears Trump has made a concerted effort to keep those meetings private despite their possible consequences for the people of the United States. Trump denied this in a weekend interview with one of his primetime supporters at Fox News. When asked if he is or ever has worked for Russia, Trump didn't answer the question, instead calling it the most insulting thing I've ever been asked. To repeat, he didn't deny he's worked for Russia. Until the next day, after it had been pointed out that he hadn't denied that, when asked the question directly. On the snow-covered lawn of the White House, the president told reporters, not only did I never work for Russia, but I think it's a disgrace that you even ask that question because it's a whole big fat hoax, adding, it's just a hoax. Decades after President Nixon declared, I am not a crook, President Trump was making an even more bizarre declaration, I never worked for Russia. As mentioned before, Trump's public statements about Putin, Russia, and the investigation are themselves efforts to obstruct justice in the minds of Robert Mueller's prosecutors. It appears the purpose of Trump's statements are to influence key witnesses as well as discredit the probe itself. Trump's own words indict him. Trump's false and misleading statements to the public and the press make him appear guilty. 
and his ever-changing accounts of what did or didn't happen are also a focus of the Mueller team. And his refusal to sit down with Mueller for a face-to-face interview, along with his current refusal to answer any questions in person or in writing. Trump's specific refusal to answer any of Mueller's questions about obstruction is also obstruction. So are his reported efforts to fire Robert Mueller. And that includes answering questions about the response he wrote for his son, Don Jr., after we learned of Jr.'s Trump Tower meeting with Russians. Trump's campaign manager was also at that meeting, along with the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Special counsel Robert Mueller is looking into all of this, even looking at former House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes, who made it his job to protect Trump instead of investigating him. Now Nunes is under investigation. Now, Mueller and federal prosecutors in Manhattan are studying a breakfast meeting at the Trump Hotel in D.C. that involved Nunez, former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, and dozens of foreign officials just two days before the inauguration, which is also being investigated. Investigators want to know if any of those foreign officials were there at that breakfast to buy influence with the White House, possibly through illegal donations to Trump's massive inaugural fund. Congressman Nunes, who has spent so much time defending Trump, may now be faced with defending himself and his own actions. Using botched grammar, the right-wing congressman told Fox News four months ago, you'd be shocked at the number of Americans who have drank the Russia Kool-Aid and actually believe Donald Trump is under control of Vladimir Putin. And now, a Democrat leads the House Intelligence Committee, and Mr. Nunes is a person of interest in a criminal investigation. What you have just heard in a little over a thousand words or so is a capsulization of what we know so far. What we don't know is what Robert Mueller knows. We may soon find out, but that comes with asterisks. The Mueller report is already being written. Parts of it are already done, according to multiple sources who also say the report should be finished in about six weeks or so. The law does not require the special counsel to make his findings public. He is required to submit them to the Justice Department, and therein lies obstacle number one. The Justice Department has options. The Justice Department official who's overseeing the Mueller probe when the report arrives has the authority to kill it, or as the White House has requested, turn it over to administration lawyers who want to remove the parts it claims violate executive privilege, the right of a president to keep most of their communications private. The White House also has a bit of a problem here, in that it's already voluntarily turned over millions of pages of documents, thereby waiving executive privilege on those discussions. The White House was cooperative when Trump had different Russia lawyers, and the House was safely in Republican hands. The Department of Justice also has the option of turning the Mueller report over to Congress. But will it? Trump's acting attorney general, Matt Whitaker, and the man Trump's chosen to be his new permanent AG, William Barr, have both sharply criticized the Mueller investigation. In his confirmation hearing this week, Barr tried to tamp down fear that he'd kill the report. He told lawmakers he'd let Mueller finish his investigation and that he mostly favors making Mueller's report public, or at least to make public his take, Barr's take on the report. But even Republican lawmakers are demanding to see the original Mueller report, which was nearly two years in the making at taxpayer expense. Although Barr was chosen by Trump to protect the president, it is simply too early to tell whether he will. He testified under oath that he will not allow the White House to edit the Mueller report, as Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani had suggested. 
Barr has said at his age he won't be bullied by anyone, much less the president, and that he'll let Mueller finish. He promised to refuse a presidential order that he fire Mueller without cause. But he promised that he'll try to publish as much of the report as he can, that Bob Mueller is his longtime friend, and that Mueller would never conduct a witch hunt, as Trump has accused. He said Jeff Sessions was right to recuse himself from the investigation since he'd been part of the campaign that appears to have been in cahoots with Russia. Barr promised that he would protect the independence and reputation of the Justice Department, that he has no political aspirations of his own, and that he'll never let the nation's top echelons of law enforcement be used as a political tool. Barr declared that the memo he'd written criticizing the Mueller probe was written before he had the facts. But he also kept vague many of his answers about the Mueller report and other matters. It is simply too early to tell how William P. Barr will behave once he is confirmed as the nation's new attorney general at a crucial moment in the timeline of this Democratic Republic. But Mueller also has options. Mueller could, but is not expected to, indict the president. Mueller's cautious, by-the-book style is a sign he'll stick to precedent and Justice Department guidance, but he doesn't have to. Mueller apparently could also break precedent by making the report public himself. But the more likely option for Mueller, if his through-the-State-Department approach appears doomed, is to turn his report over to the House Judiciary Committee. If his report names Trump as an unindicted co-conspirator, lawmakers in the now democratically controlled House would be compelled to begin impeachment hearings exactly as they did with Richard Nixon. Congress also has options, especially now that Democrats control the House. Existing committees in the House, including Judiciary, Intelligence, Oversight, and Foreign Affairs, have the right to subpoena the Justice Department for the Mueller report, and they intend to use that right. Judiciary Chairman Adam Schiff says he and the other Democrats will fight to get that report and to make it public. Schiff says that for national security reasons, parts of the Mueller report may have to be redacted, but he says the case is too important to keep from the American people. The White House will put up a fight, and that fight will be epic. The White House no longer has a Republican House to prevent any subpoenas. The White House has already set a precedent for cooperating with Congress set when Republicans safely controlled the House. To argue against cooperating now would run counter to that precedent and throw doubt on the motives for suppressing evidence. Still, White House lawyers plan to claim executive privilege to try to block big parts of the Mueller report. They even plan to claim privilege over communications in the Trump transition team before he became president. Executive privilege is a gambit that's virtually doomed to fail, just as it did for Presidents Nixon and Clinton when they tried to use it and were both struck down by the courts. There's speculation that if the executive privilege gambit fails, the Trump administration will have William Barr in the Justice Department to help it justify presidential pardons in the Russia affair. Barr had already spoken favorably about pardons in this case. In the meantime, prepare for an epic court battle between the White House and the Congress, two of our three branches of government before the third a fight that involves then all three branches of government. Prepare also for the Mueller report, which may be closer than it appears and which would seem destined to find its way into the hands of the American people. Michael Cohen wants to help. 
The president's former cover-up man seems sincere in his expressed desire to save his soul, to include in his fame the good he's doing in addition to the bad to which he has confessed. Michael Cohen may even like to see his public image elevated to that of former Nixon White House lawyer John Dean, whose testimony was much of the undoing of Richard Nixon. But most of all, Cohen would like to get further reductions in his already reduced two-year prison sentence, reductions he can get for testifying truthfully for Congress, just as John Dean had. Most of all, Cohen would like to spend the next couple of years with his two children, Jake and Samantha. Most of all, he'd like to avoid prison entirely. Time will tell. In the meantime, Michael Cohen has agreed to testify for the House Oversight Committee on Thursday, February 7th, three weeks from today. He and the committee have agreed to conduct their question and answer session in public. Special Counsel Robert Mueller has signed off on this, telling Congress that when it comes to Cohen, he already has everything he needs. Much of what Cohen has told Mueller, he's now likely to tell the rest of us. We'll have a much clearer view of what Mueller's team learned from Michael Cohen. At a minimum, the Cohen hearing will inflict more damage on the president's image, the president who turned against Michael Cohen after Cohen pledged to take a bullet for Trump. The lawyer who had fixed Trump's problems from the real estate days through the campaign, the transition, and into the White House a bit, knows the details of Trump's problems and solutions. A lot of it will likely be about the president's efforts to build a Trump Tower in Moscow and about the illegal campaign donations manifested in hush money payments to women making marital infidelity accusations against Trump. The president's named in that court filing as Individual One. Cohen says he looks forward to giving, quote, a full and credible account of the events. He's not the only one looking forward to it. The Michael Cohen hearing will be carried on the big commercial TV networks because this is a really big deal. And you'll be able to see it unfold in real time, just as you did during Watergate. Looking ahead, Adam Schiff's House Judiciary would also like to speak with Cohen behind closed doors. And in the Senate, Republican Intelligence Committee Chairman Richard Burr says his panel would also like to interview Michael Cohen. At this time last year, economic growth was up by just over 2%. In the nearly four weeks of the Trump government shutdown, economic growth has fallen by a half percent. Federal workers have missed their paychecks to the tune of well over $200 million, each worker missing five grand or more on average. It turns out there are consequences to not paying 800,000 federal workers for a month. Not surprisingly, they stopped spending the money that fuels our economy. It appears to be leading to what economists call a contraction. Fewer jobs, less income, factory slowdowns, and stores without their usual customers. And our economy is Trump's pride and joy. The longer the shutdown continues, the more economic pressure there is on him to end the shutdown. And the longer it continues, the more Americans suffer the consequences. The Trump government shut down the longest in history at nearly a month into it, is at best a zero-sum game. Federal workers saw it in their first shutdown paychecks, a sum of zero dollars and zero cents. That includes the air traffic controllers, many of whom are military veterans, and each of whom at any given moment holds hundreds of lives in their hands. If the stress of that responsibility were not enough, add to that the stress of not knowing which bills to pay with whatever money you have. And these are just 24,000, these air traffic controllers, just 24,000 
of the more than 400,000 federal workers who are working important jobs at no pay in every state of our union. 17,000 other air traffic controllers have been sent home without pay. Tens of thousands of TSA airport screeners are also working without pay, and their jobs are also important. After Friday's zero-sum paychecks, nearly 6,000 federal employees filed for unemployment benefits. More will file today. Workers classified as essential don't have that option. Some of them are calling in sick, so much that the Miami airport had to close one of its terminals. MIA's Concourse G is closed till further notice. Individual screening checkpoints have been shut down at other airports across the country, and waiting times have been stretched to three hours in places. Furloughed government workers are also taking part in protests. Some are looking for other jobs, but some are not allowed to without checking with their supervisors. Those looking for jobs aren't finding them, since employers expect them to leave to go back to their government jobs when the shutdown is over, if the shutdown ever ends. Some federal workers wouldn't go back on a bet, and the government will have difficulty finding new, qualified workers with everyone on alert that a shutdown can happen at any time. Good luck to us all, as the government has ordered 50,000 of the furloughed workers to report to work with no pay to process our tax returns and assure the safety of our food, drugs, and airline travel. What could possibly go wrong? Democrats continue to vote to reopen government one crucial department at a time. Republicans in the Senate, led by Mitch McConnell, are refusing to even vote on these measures because they're afraid. Afraid the president would veto them and that there wouldn't be enough votes to override his veto. McConnell refuses to allow votes on anything Trump would veto when it is the Senate's constitutional duty to act as a check and balance on a president. And Trump, who has owned the shutdowns from since before it began, has promised to veto anything that reopens the government unless he gets his nearly $6 billion for a wall. Democrats have made it clear that's not going to happen, yet Trump persists, almost as though he likes the U.S. government better when it's closed. That would no doubt be Vladimir Putin's preference. The FDA has stopped most food inspections because it was forced to send most of its workforce home. Processed food is now going without inspection. The FDA says it will try to focus on high-risk foods like seafood, dairy, produce, and infant formula. And that work now has to be triaged. Now the FDA may have to force workers to come back to their jobs without pay. From the dinner table to our airline flights, the safety of Americans is diminished by a shutdown that's about one thing, Trump's wall. Trump says he has a plan for ending the shutdown. Give him his wall. Democrats have a plan for ending the shutdown that in no way involves a wall. As many as 800,000 federal workers and a large number of government contract workers are facing increasing hardship over a wall that has nothing to do with the government's ability to pay them to do their work. The Trump shutdown has now cost taxpayers nearly $4 billion. Past shutdowns have cost more than keeping the government open. There's no reason to think this one will be different. The back pay that federal employees would inevitably and rightfully get will have paid for no work getting done. That's several billion right there. The Park Service lost about $7 million in uncollected fees in a 2013 shutdown that lasted half as long as this one. $7 million, half as long. 
Taxes and fees are not being collected in the park, shutting down vital income streams for the service. The government isn't paying its bills on time now, and there will be interest on those late payments and penalties. The list goes on. In another week or so, we could have paid for the wall if we had any inclination to do so. We do not. It's a wall the American people do not want. They also do not want the shutdown, and they do not want the two connected. They also don't like the president who's demanding a wall and holding hostage their government services. Poll after poll verify these statements. 56% of us do not want the wall, while only 39% do in a CNN poll. The ABC Post poll has 54% of us opposed to Trump's wall that is the center of this government shutdown. In the CNN poll, 55% blame Trump for the shutdown, while fewer than one in three blame Democrats. And only 9% blame both sides. 56% in the CNN poll opposed the wall, while only 39% supported, about the same number as Trump's latest approval rating, which has dropped five points since the shutdown began. The ABC News Washington Post poll found that 53% blamed Trump, with only 29% blaming Democrats. In that poll, 53% of independent voters blame Trump. Most independent voters blame the president. Among all voters, 54% say Democrats should stand their ground in opposing the wall. That's among all voters, 54%. But more Democrats than Republicans say there's room to negotiate. The president continues to insist on a wall and continues to try to shift the blame. And while Trump's remaining popularity wanes, Nancy Pelosi's is waxing, and she's using her power to gain political advantage over the president. She's asked Trump to delay his State of the Union speech or to give it from the Oval Office or maybe just submit it in writing. That'd be good. Pelosi wrote the president that with the shutdown and all and personnel in short supply, it would be tough to provide the kind of security in the House that she controls to protect members of the Supreme Court, the Senate, the House the president, military leaders. Pelosi doesn't want Trump to use this annual address as a bully pulpit for the wall he's already covered in his recent primetime address. It is unquestionably a Pelosi power play designed to show Trump that Congress is a co-equal branch of the government and to remind him that the shutdown can affect him too, since he appears to care most about him. Or, says Pelosi, we can still have the speech on schedule if the government reopens between now and the scheduled State of the Union on January 29th. In the days of the Wild West, the responsibility for dealing a hand of poker fell to the cowboy who had been passed a knife with a handle made from the horn of a buck deer. That is how the expression, pass the buck, came into being. The phrase, the buck stops here, became popular after it was embraced by President Harry S. Truman some 70 years ago. Truman was saying that he'd take responsibility instead of passing the buck to someone else. In the words of the Washington Post, Avi Selk, when it was his turn to deal, he would deal. Trump has now repurposed that phrase into, the buck stops with everybody. That's a quote. The president on Friday was looking to avoid personal responsibility for the shutdown he said he would mantle, while not blaming the Democrats in Congress, he said. After breaking his promise not to blame Democrats, the president, surrounded by negative polls, insisted he wasn't the only kid who's perhaps misbehaved. The buck stops with everybody, Trump told reporters on the lawn of the People's House. 
I do have a plan on the shutdown, he tweeted. But to understand that plan, he continued, you'd have to understand the fact that I won the election and I promised safety and security for the American people. Part of that promise, he wrote, was a wall at the southern border. In short, Trump's plan for ending this record-breaking government shutdown is give him what he and his shrinking base want, the rest of us be damned. In short, his solution to the shutdown is my way or the highway. Stop, stop, just stop, Trump said as he interrupted Mick Mulvaney at a meeting to look for a way out of the shutdown. What are you doing, demanded Trump, adding, you're effing it all up, Mick. Mulvaney, who heads Trump's budget office, now also serves as acting White House chief of staff, was looking for a middle ground between the $1.3 billion Democrats are willing to give him and the $5.7 billion Trump's demanding. Trump recoiled at the idea of compromise and barked at Mulvaney in front of the others that he was effing it all up. A side note about Mulvaney in 2015, he called Trump's wall idea absurd and childish. In 2016, Mulvaney said he supported Trump, quote, despite the fact that I think he's a terrible human being. The week before Trump berated Mulvaney, Trump stormed out of a meeting about the shutdown and the wall with Democrats and called it a total waste of time, despite the jobs and services on the line. He wants to do it his way or no way at all. The president is not only ignoring the pleas of Democrats, he's ignoring the pleas from his own staff and from his own party to end this. Trump supporting Senator Lindsey Graham floated a plan that would reopen government for three weeks to continue the wall negotiations. Trump rejected Graham's idea, even though Graham indicated that when the three weeks was up, all bets are off. Trump would be free to go with his gut. What's in his gut is a point of great concern. For over a week now, Trump has toyed with the idea of declaring a national emergency at the southern border, using his broad presidential powers under such a declaration to build a wall. Presumably, he would then agree to reopen the government, but that's just a presumption. The emergency declaration has been on again and off again, changing every few days. Right now, Trump says the emergency declaration is on hold as he waits for Democrats to cave to his demand. He believes they will. There's no reason to think Democrats will spend billions on Trump's wall, calling it an unnecessary project, a vanity project, and a project based on ignorance and hatred and fear. So Trump continues to wait. But that emergency declaration looms, having been threatened repeatedly already. The White House has already drawn up the papers. This is what Lindsey Graham meant when he said that after that three-week reopening of government that all bets were off. Then, said Graham, Trump could declare an emergency, bypass Congress, and do whatever he wants. So what does that mean, exactly? It was Congress that gave presidents emergency powers 43 years ago. This is as important as it sounds, which makes it surprising that Congress didn't bother at the time to define what constitutes an emergency. They left that wide open, apparently, to prepare for the unexpected. But it also leaves open the opportunity for abuse, as it was when Franklin Roosevelt's emergency declaration sent Japanese Americans into internment camps for the duration of World War II. Under a president's declared emergency powers, they can access money they don't normally control. A president is protected in this circumstance by dozens of laws that don't normally apply, laws allowing unilateral decisions a president isn't normally allowed to make. It is not unusual for a president to invoke these emergency powers. Bill Clinton did it 17 times, George W. Bush a dozen times, and 13 for Obama. 
Presidents have been declaring national emergencies since World War II. They usually involve a threat posed by a foreign government, nukes in North Korea or the Iran hostage crisis, from swine flu to 9-11. Because they can be and are sometimes renewed when the declaration's year run runs out, the 9-11 emergency declaration remains in effect today. Emergency declarations can accomplish things. President Dwight Eisenhower used them to force Little Rock, Arkansas schools to put white students and African-American students into the same classrooms. President Obama used an emergency order to stop the deportation of more than 4 million undocumented immigrants. Donald Trump wants to use it to build a wall. I'm allowed to do it. The law is 100% on my side, Trump said proudly to his fans on Fox News. But when a president declares an emergency... That doesn't have to be the end of it. If Congress wants to stop him, it can, but only with a two-thirds majority override of his veto. Lawsuits and court injunctions can also stop a president's emergency plans. These emergency powers do not include mystical powers. Checks and balances remain in effect through lawsuits and legislation. If Trump were to declare an emergency to build a wall, there would be lawsuits from the people most affected by the shutdown. You and I can think of 800,000 such people right off the bat. Legal experts say we can expect a lot of lawsuits if Trump declares an emergency and builds a wall. And lawsuits can actually bring a very quick end to things if the complainants persuade the judge to issue an injunction. But for now, here's what Trump has in mind for his pending national emergency declaration. To pay for the wall, since neither Mexico nor Congress will do it, the Trump administration's looking at a sweet $13.9 billion disaster spending bill passed by Congress last year. That money would be robbed from a fund for flood control projects along the Texas coast, which was battered by Hurricane Harvey. It would rob money from the projects to protect the hurricane-ravaged U.S. territory of Puerto Rico. Projection projects in Florida and California would also be affected. The administration has already urged the Army Corps of Engineers to see how fast they could sign construction companies to contracts so the work could begin inside of, say, six weeks. The Trump White House also has its eye on money in the Pentagon's multi-billion dollar construction budget. All Democrats and a possibly surprising number of Republicans are worried about Trump's plans. Lindsey Graham is among those not worried. Okay, maybe a little. I hope it works, says Graham. There are other walls in the way of building Trump's wall. One estimate says it would take 10,000 workers 10 years, maybe 15, to build a 2,000-mile-long wall. It's estimated it would take two years just to get the project started, just to break ground. Former Texas Governor Rick Perry said a border-length fence would cost $30 billion, not $5.7 billion. And that was six years ago for a fence, not a big, beautiful wall. Rick Perry also said it would take 15 years to build that fence and that it would never pay for itself. It also would not, as Trump has promised, stop the drugs. It didn't stop El Chapo. Now that El Chapo and some of his key people are behind bars in the U.S., several cartel members have testified they used fishing boats, trains, tractor trailers, and passenger cars passing through our legal points of entry or private planes arriving at U.S. airports not sprinted across some isolated part of the border by Central Americans with cantaloupe-shaped calves, as Republican Iowa Congressman Steve King had once suggested. And they occasionally used underground tunnels 
for smuggling weapons. But they smuggled nothing by any method that would or could be stopped by a wall. Sign the papers. Aside from trampling delicate flora and fauna and bulldozing through a wildlife preserve to build the wall, the Trump administration would also face the challenge of taking possession of what is now private property to build his wall. Trump needs that property. He can get it. He can buy it or seize it under the government's powers of eminent domain. But it won't be easy. Americans who own property along the Rio Grande River Valley where the U.S. and Mexico meet have been getting letters from the federal government recently. The letters are asking permission to come onto their properties for some surveys and soil tests. And do you mind if we park this bulldozer here? A high school teacher who has one acre on the border says she's about to be evicted. On one such piece of land stands a 150-year-old Catholic chapel that still hosts weddings, funerals, and Palm Sunday services. That could be interesting since Trump and his Republicans are all about religious rights. Some of these folks have had this land in their families for generations. In the case of a family of ranchers in the valley, 250 years they've had that piece of land. And they're banding together and hiring lawyers to fight the Trump land grab. And a massive land grab it would be, confiscating several hundred parcels of private property along the Rio Grande. But the homeowners are likely to lose it all if a court rules that the land is being seized of because, wait for it, a national emergency. Trump is not shy about using eminent domain, as he tried to do in evicting a widow in Atlantic City, New Jersey, whose home stood in the way of his casino's parking lot. Not the main parking lot, the one for limousines. In that case, the court said no, since parking the limos of Trump's customers doesn't quite constitute an emergency. It's not often that lawmakers from both parties band together and condemn and shame one of their own, but House lawmakers did exactly that this week when Republicans stripped Iowa Steve King of his two important committee seats, and lawmakers in both parties rebuked him, condemned him for his ongoing embrace of white nationalism and white supremacy. They also condemned the white nationalism, white supremacy horse that King rode in on. King's most recent comments were the final straw, asking a reporter what was so wrong about those things. The vote to rebuke King wasn't even close, 424 to 1. Some Democrats who now control the House think King's punishment doesn't go far enough. They want him censured. In recent history, a Republican lawmaker was rebuked for shouting out, liar, during an Obama State of the Union address to Congress. It is never too late to do the right thing, said Florida Governor Rick DeSantis as he posthumously pardoned four young African-American men who were convicted of raping a white woman in 1949. The young men were, in fact, framed and railroaded in the South 70 years ago. As the new leader of Florida's clemency board, the new Republican governor of Florida said justice cried out for these pardons. In 1949, a 17-year-old white girl claimed she had been raped by four black men. Three of the accused men were arrested by police and beaten by police until two of them confessed to make the beating stop. The fourth man was hunted down by an angry mob of a thousand people who got to him before the police did and shot him more than 400 times, still shooting long after he was dead. The suspect's family members were also arrested as white mobs rioted, burned down the home of one of the accused, and demanded they all be lynched. Instead, it went to court, an old South court, 
in which the defense attorneys were kept from bringing in any evidence or witnesses. The all-white jury convicted the three surviving suspects, one sentenced to life in prison, the other two sentenced to death. After the trial, the white sheriff shot and killed one of the men claiming he had tried to escape while the two were being escorted to prison. The sheriff also shot that other convict three times, but this one lived until seven years ago. The Groveland Four, as they were known, have finally been pardoned after 70 years because, as Florida's Republican governor said, it's never too late to do the right thing. The federal judge has blocked the Trump administration's plan to ask about a person's citizenship status in the 2020 census. The administration has been accused of trying to turn the census into a political tool to advance conservative immigration arguments and to intimidate undocumented Americans. The purpose of the census is to count heads, not citizens, so the government can know how to allocate money and representation in Congress in the drawing of election district maps. If the money and representation were only provided for citizens, millions of U.S. residents would go without services and Republicans would increase their election advantage. Even legal citizens would go undercounted, afraid to answer that citizenship question. A federal judge struck down the Trump plan and criticized Trump's Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross for giving false or misleading statements while under oath in this case, as Ross clumsily tried to justify adding the citizenship question. A federal judge in California, meanwhile, has struck down a Trump administration rule that would let more employers opt out of providing free birth control to female workers. The order only applies to 13 states, however, plus Washington, D.C. Church-owned businesses were already allowed to opt out of the otherwise mandatory availability for no-cost birth control for religious reasons. The Trump administration has added to that exemption corporations that have moral objections to providing birth control. But that exemption has now been blocked in D.C., California, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Illinois, Maryland, Minnesota, New York, North Carolina, Rhode Island, Vermont, Virginia, and Washington State. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. The religious right, which has supported Trump despite the lies and the porn star, is on the march in state legislatures across the country this year in a campaign called Project Blitz. These Christian soldiers have been out witnessing to state lawmakers, persuading them to introduce bills they've pre-written for the lawmakers' convenience. One package of bills from Project Blitz is called In God We Trust. That bill proposes that the phrase be placked or engraved on all public buildings, including schools, and that it be painted on the side of police cruisers. In God We Trust bills have already been introduced in Alaska, Kentucky, Missouri, and South Carolina. In Texas, Project Blitz helped introduce a bill to let teachers display the Ten Commandments in their classrooms. In Florida, a bill to require public high schools to offer Bible study classes using only the Christian Bible. Florida was an easy target for Project Blitz since it has a lawmaker named Kimberly Daniels who claims to be an exorcist. She also claims to be a Democrat. Bible class bills have also been introduced in Missouri and North Dakota. Project Blitz has Georgia lawmakers ready to pass a Religious Freedom Act that would let businesses in Georgia refuse service to the LGBTQ community on religious grounds, and that bill also allows that same discrimination at adoption and foster care agencies. Back in D.C., the vice president's wife, Karen Pence, has returned part-time to her job at a Christian school that bans students and teachers who are part of the LGBTQ community. 
Such discrimination is not illegal in a church-owned school. But the second lady's involvement in such a school sends a message nationwide. It was on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert that New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand became the latest Democrat to announce she's running for president. Earlier in the week, a former U.S. housing secretary and former San Antonio mayor, Julian Castro, officially announced his run for the White House. Gillibrand and Castro both have notable support. Ms. Gillibrand's first promise was to restore compassion to government. Castro's first campaign stop was in Puerto Rico. At least four other Democrats have officially announced their candidacies, including Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. A half million students in Los Angeles are not going to school as the calendar requires. That's because 35,000 of their teachers are on strike. But neither the teachers, nor the students, nor their parents are idled. Students and parents have joined the teachers in massive protests in the streets. The teachers were overwhelmed, having classrooms packed with as many as 46 students. Students standing without desks at the back of the room to try to learn algebra. The school district is the second biggest in the United States, and it's nearly insolvent financially. The school board says it cannot fix this without more money from the state. This is the fourth day of the L.A. teacher strike. It's the 27th day of the government shutdown. Where are all the birds? Growing food on the moon, a commentary by Bob Seska, and 27 pounds of mac and cheese in the final segment up next. Thank you for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com for all your shopping year-round at home and at work. Your use of that link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening, so please bookmark it as your permanent shopping button. I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make that way and for every Amazon Prime membership purchased through me, so it really helps power this free weekly report. Just look for the Amazon logo on my website, click it, land on your very own Amazon page, and bookmark that. At your desktop, it's in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. And if you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal donate button that's right there. And thank you. We have long embraced the phrase bug be gone, and we have long cherished ocean waves crashing on the beach. Prepare to alter what you know. It had been 35 years since scientist Brad Lister had been to the rainforest in Puerto Rico. The first thing he wondered on his return was, where are all the birds? There was nothing, he says. And he soon learned why and shared that with the Guardian. He learned that over the past 35 years, since the last time he was in that rainforest, 98% of the insects that occupied the forest floor were gone. 98%. Higher up, at the canopy of the forest, among all those leaves, 80% of the insects had vanished. Scientists, including Brad Lister, know that bugs are such an important part of the world's food chain that a crash in their numbers plays footsie with ecological Armageddon. Lister says there's no time like the present to start asking, what's going on? Global warming gives a boost to all kinds of environmental conditions, including the strength of the waves that crash against the rocks and sandy beaches of our coastline. And the waves are crashing harder these days. The warmer the oceans, the harder they crash. That's what scientists have just discovered. They'd been studying the temperatures and the currents and the rise in sea level, but only recently did they notice the change in the force of those crashing waves. 
They've now calculated that the strength of those waves has increased by nearly a half percent every year since 1948 when the force of waves was first measured. The concern is with rising sea levels already threatening millions of homes and other properties, the erosion of increasingly powerful waves will accelerate the need for millions of people, businesses, and other facilities to move inland. The oceans are getting warmer, faster than we thought. As the data comes more into focus, scientists now warn that the oceans are warming 40 to 50% faster than they had said before. That's a very big deal since the oceans cover more than two-thirds of this planet and absorb 90% of the heat. Scientists say we should adjust our expectations about the arrival of a worldwide catastrophic environment. Or as the Washington Post put it this week, brace for impact. Warm water also melts ice. From Antarctica comes the news that the ice melt there has accelerated over the past 40 years by 280%. The author of the study, a researcher at UC Irvine, told CNN, Antarctica is melting away, and not just in a couple of places. If it seems the Earth is spinning off its axis, you're right. Magnetic north has moved before, even reversing the planet's polarity. That's caused by the fluid shifting of molten iron and nickel at the core of this planet. Magnetic north flips every two or three hundred thousand years. But when it tried to flip 40,000 years ago, it failed. Now it's been 800,000 years since the last flip, so it's long overdue. We're still waiting. And scientists want to know why that attempted flip failed and why magnetic north is flailing now. I don't recall a headline about this, but in 2015, scientists say Magnetic North actually dipped as far as South America. They want to know if we have, as the Earth has before, reached a tipping point or another failure to tip. Magnetic North has moved restlessly in recent years, shifting rapidly recently and messing with our satellite navigation systems, which are adjusted accordingly. American and British scientists say they hope to know more by the end of this year. Not only has China landed a probe on the far side of the moon, over the past week it sent back thousands of clear and spectacular pictures. Now everyone can see it's not dark on that side at all, except in terms of radio signals which are blocked by the moon itself. A satellite orbiting the moon is making possible the sending of those photos. The Chinese hope to use 3D printers to build a lunar research base. And this is their first land survey in addition to making China first on the far side. Eager to compete with the U.S. and Russia, China is also planning to build a permanent space station. On board the Chinese lunar lander was a cotton seed that has since germinated. It sprouted. Future space explorers will need food more than they can carry on their trips, and they'll need to be able to grow their own. The Chinese experiment proves it can be done. One small leaf for mankind. China's already shared a lot of data from its mission with NASA. It's the first time the U.S. and China have been allowed to share information after an American law banned working with China without congressional approval. China is fulfilling a deal it made with NASA to share data about this mission after the U.S. shared some data from its own lunar missions with China. And whether you're a science buff or not, you may still want to see the Super Wolf Blood Moon late Sunday night. 
It's a supermoon because it'll be at its closest point to us in its oval-shaped orbit. A supermoon looks up to 7% bigger than your average full moon. January's full moon is also known as a wolf moon, as it was called in the early Anglo-Saxon days inspired by howling wolves. And it's a blood moon, which occur around the time of an eclipse or near miss of an eclipse. The moon takes on a reddish hue as it grows darker because of the naturally occurring dust in our atmosphere. It isn't often a moon is all these things at once. The show starts Sunday evening, local weather permitting, with the total eclipse beginning at about 11.41 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The eclipse is expected to reach its peak at 12.43 a.m. Eastern Scientists say the best part of the show is the 62 minutes of the eclipse itself, unless you'd like to stand out in the cold for the entire five hours to see the whole thing. We'll close out the science page this week with a story of worlds colliding at this year's Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. As the convention was set to begin, a self-driving Tesla crashed into a Russian robot, completely destroying it. It was late in coming, but flu season is every bit as bad this year as it was last year. More than 7.5 million people are down with it so far. Over 84,000 have been admitted to hospitals this year. There are no national numbers on this year's flu deaths so far, but Oklahoma reports 13. Other deaths have been reported in Texas and New Jersey. Barely over a third of us have gotten vaccinated this year, even fewer than last year. Even though influenza killed over 80,000 people last year and put nearly a million into hospitals. Murderers killed only one-fourth the number of people that were killed by the flu last year. Those without the vaccine risk getting the flu and putting the rest of us at risk. And while we're running the numbers... New ones from the National Safety Council show that Americans are more likely to die from an accidental opioid overdose than in a car wreck. Checking out on opioids is also more likely than dying from a fall, a shooting, drowning, or being an unseen pedestrian. Americans have a 1 in 96 chance of losing their lives to opioids. Heart disease and cancer remain Americans' leading causes of death, but don't scoff at dying from a fall. The odds of that happening have actually increased in recent years. An official of the Safety Council recommends we pay less attention to headline-grabbing plane crashes and earthquakes and watch where we're walking and the things we can do to make ourselves safer. Wide-eyed and charming Carol Channing, iconic star of stage and screens big and small, has gone away again. Best known for her role in Broadway's Hello, Dolly, she won an Oscar for the movie Thoroughly Modern Millie. After surviving two strokes in 2018, she passed at her home in California at the age of 97. Her raspy-voiced diamonds are a girl's best friend will ring on. One quarter African-American, Carol Elaine Channing, was still stealing the show at age 74 as Dolly. The Upside was the top movie this week. It stars Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart, and it didn't quite hit the $20 million mark. Two that may interest you are at or near the bottom of the list, but still in the top ten. Vice stars Christian Bale as former Vice President Dick Cheney in a darkly funny movie that's getting a lot of awards buzz. And doing slightly better than Vice at the box office is the movie about Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg titled On the Basis of Sex. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, by all means, please click through the Fandango logo you'll find at buzzburbank.com. 
In TV news this week, Megyn Kelly and NBC are through fighting. They've settled on the Peacock Network, giving her $30 million of the $69 million promised her when she signed a two-year deal two years ago. Her hour of the Today Show was ripped from her hands in mid-October after she'd used part of that hour to express sympathy for white people who wear blackface at Halloween. Ratings for that hour of today are up 18% since the former Fox News anchor was let out the door. A new ad campaign has angered some, but others are excited about it. In a razor-sharp commentary, Salon.com's Bob Seska says, Me too. Bob? Thanks, Buzz. Don't look now, but a group of a-holes is busily destroying another retail product they had already purchased. You might recall the last time this happened when wizards and red hats were smashing their televisions in protest against, I don't know, something, something, something. This time, they're smashing and destroying their Gillette products because of a new commercial in which the razor manufacturer calls for an end to toxic masculinity. In the ad, we see a series of scenes illustrating various awful actions and behaviors by men. Behaviors and actions we're all aware of, chiefly because it's all but an ugly part of society for, you know, hundreds if not thousands of years. Sexual harassment, bullying, misogyny, and of course the boys will be boys excuse for all of the above. Consequently, easily triggered men across the internet are lashing out against the ad, suggesting Gillette hates all men, or that Gillette is encouraging men to not be men. And yeah, many of those guys are concurrently collapsing on their fainting couches while flushing their razors and vowing to never use Gillette products ever again. Apparently, the scenes of bullying and mansplaining in the commercial hit too close to home. I mean, after all, the ad wasn't suggesting that decent men need to change their behavior. The ad was clearly and directly targeting men whose behavior has been the opposite of decent, whether that means bullying of any kind or accosting women sexually, verbally, or emotionally. Emotionally. Here's a sample of some of the comments under the video on YouTube. Quote, I think men should embrace their masculinity. They were born that way. You telling me they should be ashamed? Now, if the roles were reversed for women, this would be sexist. So odd how that plays out, unquote. Again, no one's saying we should stop being men. They're saying the destructive behavior, especially toward women, is long past due to end. Wow, so defensive. The next comment, quote, Gillette has basically degraded masculinity here. They've accused all men, their target audience, of sexually assaulting women, bullying, fighting, etc. End quote. Did I miss something? Where does the ad say all men? Gillette didn't accuse all men, unless this commenter is suggesting all men are sexual predators and bullies, which they're not. Gillette accused the men who deal in these poisonous behaviors. Not every man on the planet, which I would assume includes some of the crew who filmed the commercial, not to mention the performers on screen. The next comment, quote, Now do an ad on toxic femininity, unquote. Well, if alleged toxic femininity were even close to being as pervasive as toxic masculinity, we'd see instance after instance of female-on-male rape. We'd see instance of female-led genocide and war. We'd see an entire roster of female presidents who grabbed men by the penises, as opposed to exactly zero female presidents, partly because until 100 years ago, women weren't even allowed to vote in this country thanks to laws passed by 
You guessed it. Here's a thought exercise to further underscore my point. Off the top of your head, name one woman who was nominated to serve on the Supreme Court and who was, in the process of being confirmed, accused of sexually assaulting several men. Give up? That's probably because there aren't any female jurists who've been sexually accused of assaulting men. And it's also because only a handful of women have ever been nominated. And you're telling me there's such a thing as systemic toxic femininity? The backlash is the very definition of Queen Gertrude's interrogative in Hamlet, doth protest too much, methinks. As a man of 47 years, I watched the commercial and never once felt like I was being personally judged, mainly because I don't sexually assault anyone, one, and I limit any bullying to a-holes like Donald Trump, who themselves are the worst of the worst when it comes to bullying. Call it counterbullying. Likewise, if you feel as if the scenes of toxic masculinity in the ad are suggesting that you personally should stop behaving in a certain way, perhaps you should. In other words, there are dozens of manifestations of human maleness that don't involve abusing others, and exactly none of those other behaviors were lumped into Gillette's message. And what's that message? Simple. For too long, too many men have generally acted like entitled power-mad jagoffs, routinely subjugating or outright destroying women, not to mention other men deemed to be too intellectual, effeminate, or generally too weak. History texts are wall-to-wall -wall with harrowing stories along these lines, and many of our modern lives have been peppered with episodes involving men behaving badly. So, for the purposes of selling razors, Gillette has chosen to amplify the messages of the Me Too era, applauding men who've been enlightened while shaming those who haven't. Despite the corporate cynicism of piggybacking an otherwise trivial retail product onto a popular activist movement, there's absolutely nothing wrong with getting the word out. All told, this isn't just my feminism talking. It's my objective view of the landscape that's led me to these conclusions. Without a doubt, men have been responsible for innumerable discoveries, heroism, and life-improving achievements throughout recorded time. No one is denying that. But it's also true that the vast majority of atrocities on this planet have also been at the hands of men. Full stop. Despite the rise of women's rights in the past hundred years, most men still run the machinery of politics and economics in this world. And yes, they're responsible for everything from female genital mutilation to pedophilia to the prevalence of roofies and date rape. It's just statistical reality. And now, at long last, both women and men are declaring in unity, enough. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with Bob again on Tuesday. Hot chocolate, and just in time for the really cold weather. In snow-dotted Flagstaff, Arizona, there was hot chocolate all over Interstate 40 in our Highway Spill of the Week. A tanker full of dark liquid goodness spun out, flipping onto its side. No one got hurt, no one was arrested or even ticketed. Cleanup crews had no choice but to drain the hot chocolate onto the median so the tanker would be light enough to write so it could be hauled away. No word on whether that task was finger-licking good. It's been a cool couple of weeks in at least part of Florida, but being from Minnesota, the Tampa Bay chill did not deter 47-year-old Jason Bradley Teets. Video shows he walked out of an elevator of a hotel on St. Pete Beach, completely naked. 
stepping out onto the rooftop bar where he encountered a female employee. He proceeded to begin an unwanted show as he sat in a chair. The employee called in a manager who approached Jason Bradley Teets to assure that he cannot be naked in public and that he certainly can't do that in front of people. Teets stood up, pointed himself toward the stairwell, escorted by this lucky hotel manager who then called the cops. Off he went to the Pinellas County Jail where he bailed out the next day. Three days passed. And then Jason Bradley Teets was arrested again, this time for putting on his little show at Clearwater Beach for guests at the Hyatt Hotel and the Barefoot Beach House. There he presented his show from inside a cabana with the flaps open, of course. Three women complained. When they did, Teets took off running, ultimately hiding in the parking garage at the Wyndham Grand Hotel. An employee gave chase, calling 911 along the way and getting punched in the face along the way. Captured again, Mr. Teets now faces multiple counts of lewd behavior and a charge of assault. His bond is much higher this time. Maybe radio news reporter Mike Campbell's in the wrong line of work. Currently employed by WWJ in Detroit, Campbell might make a better cop. Two weeks ago, he helped police catch a man who'd tried to loot a store after a shopping center fire. Last week, crime-fighting reporter Mike Campbell found a woman who'd gone missing. The pajamas and slippers gave it away. Still, police tweeted to Campbell, We owe you lunch. If Crime Buster Campbell does it again this week, they may also owe him a pension. Even the cops suffer the occasional break-in. In Wyoming, Pennsylvania, yes, Wyoming, Pennsylvania, a woman used a cigarette butt station to bust out the glass doors on a police station in the middle of the night, whereupon she started rummaging through the files. Video surveillance shows that along the way she assaulted a police officer and committed vandalism. They also have surveillance video inside the police station in Boynton Beach, Florida. But it was an officer's already eaten chicken dinner that revealed there had been a break-in in that police station, too. And again, the break-in was conducted by a woman who came and went in about 45 minutes. But why spend tax dollars on a DNA test of some chicken bones when you can identify the woman on the video? Because she left her wallet and two IDs behind. She faces burglary charges for the stolen chicken dinner, I guess. It was not in Florida, but in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where a man hurled a three-foot alligator atop another man to try to make the victim pay his attacker $800. The victim called his aunt last April to say he had been kidnapped and his abductor was demanding 800 bucks. The extortionist kidnapper texted her a photo of her nephew face down in a bathtub trapped under the weight of a gator. The perp is likely spending the next year in prison. Bridgeport police call it one of the strangest cases they've ever investigated. Thankfully, we can all find comfort in food. An awful lot of us find comfort in macaroni and cheese. Not a commercial here, but man, does Costco have a deal for you. The big box store is now selling a 27-pound bucket of macaroni and cheese. And no, it won't go bad because each of the 180 packets inside the bucket are vacuum-packed. And each pouch is guaranteed fresh for 20 years. That price is out, by the way, to about 50 cents a serving. As previously reported, for 1000 bucks, Costco also offers a year's worth of shelter-in-place food, enough for one or two people. That food is good for 25 years, but bring a can opener. It's in Costco's emergency provision section. 
Costco won't say how many it sold. And finally, a woman who loves to hunt game near her home in Dakota, Oklahoma, has also been hunting for love. She'd made a friend on a dating app. This dating app friend knew she loved hunting, so he paid close attention to the tale of her most recent kill. She'd used a spotlight to shoot a deer at night and outside rifle season. All she took from the deer was the backstrap meat and the head for a trophy. She documented all of this in photographs she shared with her dating app friend, who's also an Oklahoma State game warden. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting this free news at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.